Well, good morning, church. Merry Christmas, everyone. Would you please be turning in your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 5. This morning in Luke chapter 5, we're going to be looking at verses 27 through 32, the calling of Levi or Matthew. And as I read these words now, please know that these are the words of the Lord. And after that, he, that is Jesus, went out and noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office. He said to him, follow me. And he left everything behind and rose up and began to follow him. And Levi gave a big reception for him in his house. And there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and the scribes began grumbling at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered and said to them, It is not those who are well who have need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Thus far is the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. And as we do each week, let's ask God's blessing on our time. Father, we come here this morning as a people who have heard the words, follow me. We who were the undesirables, we who were broken, we who were in need of a Savior, and He spoke to each one of us in our heart through the gospel saying, come, follow me. Thank you for that. That's what Christmas is all about. That's why you came. You came to call sinners to repentance. And I pray that you would continue doing that even this morning as more who are here today who have not heard or the Spirit has not brought light to that message that they would hear this morning the Savior calling Come, sinful one, to repentance. Come follow Jesus. And for the rest of us, would you give us food and nourishment from your word so that we might leave here with hearts full of the joy of the Lord, celebrating the reason why he came. That he came as a perfect sinless man and he died in our place to take our sins away and rose for our justification. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Well, I'd be willing to wager that most of you at some point in your life have seen the 1964 made-for-TV stop-motion animation cartoon, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. There we go. All right. It is the longest continuously running TV Christmas special in world history. And it's pretty cheesy, too. <laughs> Nevertheless, Joshua and I must have watched that thing a hundred or more times growing up. What is it with claymation dolls and poorly written earworm songs that 
keeps people coming back to it again and again every year around Christmas time. I can tell you, it's the story of the outcast being chosen. That's what it is. Rudolph's an outcast. Hermie, the aspiring DDS elf, is an outcast. And nobody can forget that there's a whole island of outcasts, the island of misfit toys. You know that segregated and emotionally cold wilderness which broken playthings are banished to. Who wants a swimming bird anyway? But fear not. Santa promised to find a loving home for all those misfits who today would be forsaken to the soul-sucking corners of an Amazon warehouse. Now, I want to tell you something this morning about the movie that you didn't know. I'd, I'd say very few of us knew about this. A deleted scene. And rightfully so. For one year, the year 1964, when Rudolph first aired, there was no scene at the end of the movie to show that Santa went back to the island of misfit toys to keep his promise. Nothing. Nothing about that. He just flew over beautiful American houses and threw out good presents to the good little children, so self-righteous, a Pharisee of Pharisees. And then there was a huge backlash. This is a true story. Children and adults wrote in by the thousands. Remember, these are the days of snail mail when you actually had to write a letter out. They wrote in by the thousands to demand that Santa repent and keep his word <laughs> to the island of misfit toys. The holiday special that you see today with all the lonely toys finding a home during the credits is now the authorized, canonized version of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Why does all of America watch a silly TV special like Rudolph and then feel the need to write in and say, now wait a sec, you missed something so important, I'm not watching this one more time unless you fix it. It's something in all of us that says, this whole world is broken, and I know it's got to be made right. I know it has to. Something's got to change. Something's got to give. There's something in all of us, even in the most hard-hearted, if they would dig deep enough, if God would give them light to see it, I'm broken, and I'm a misfit, but I want to be fixed, and I want to be chosen, and I want to be called. And Luke's gospel, if you'll remember, is the gospel for the outcasts. It's the gospel for the unclean. It's the gospel for the traitors, those who need a physician. And in today's text, Jesus makes crystal clear that he came into the world to seek and to save misfits just like these. Well, in verses 27 to 29 this morning, we are going to see the disposition of our Lord Jesus and the inevitable fruit of his love for the misfits. And then in verses 30 to 32, we'll see the disappointment of the Pharisees and the dispatching of their argument by our Lord 
the disposition of Jesus and its inevitable fruit, and then the disappointment of the Pharisees and the dispatching of their argument. Well, let's begin with verse 27. In last week's text, Jesus had a crowd of onlookers on the edge of their seats. While claiming to be the Son of Man from Daniel 7, he healed a paralyzed man with a simple command. Rise, take up your bed, and go home. And what we read about today is sometime after that, if you'll look at the beginning of verse 27, it says, sometime after that, the calling of Levi took place. Now Mark's gospel gives us a little bit more detail at this point. In Mark chapter 2, verse 13, you don't have to turn there, but listen as I read. And he, that is Jesus, went out again by the seashore, and the entire crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. Much of Jesus' earthly ministry took place near the Sea of Capernaum, which is the most likely location for this event that we're going to read about this morning. Luke continues in verse 27 of our passage. And he went out and noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. Now what you have to see first is the way in which Jesus recognized Levi. The Legacy Standard Bible that I'm reading from this morning translates the Greek word etheasato into the English word noticed. Most translations use the word noticed and others will use a word Jesus saw Levi. But the problem with these two words noticed or saw is that it almost makes it seem like it was a coincidence. Jesus happened to be walking by and he just noticed, oh look, there's a tax collector. Or he saw him over there sitting at his tax booth. But this wasn't a coincidence. Jesus didn't just ha happen to glance over at him. Ethesado communicates intentionality. It means to view attentively, to contemplate, to discern, or even to perceive one or something. The only translation I could find that captures this well is the less than helpful NASB 2020 version, which says, after that he went out and he looked at a tax collector named Levi. What Luke wants us to see here is the disposition of our Lord Jesus towards this rascal character. First off, consider Jesus' initiative. It's Jesus' initiative. It wasn't Levi's. All was on Christ in noticing and singling this man out. He looked because he intended to choose Levi. He purposed to stare this man in the eyes, get his attention, and then call him to be a disciple. Our Lord didn't go about his days like some jello-hearted pietist, wobbling to and fro by external forces, a soft man whose locus of control was completely outside of himself. Everybody was determining what Jesus was going to do because of their actions. That's not our Lord. He knew exactly what his mission was about, and he knew what or rather in this case, who he was looking for. He was looking for sinners. By Jove, here in our text this morning, he's found one. The man's name is Levi, which means joined or united. This is Luke's name choice for him. You heard me say in the beginning that his other name is Matthew, and both Gospels, Matthew and Mark, 
call him Matthew in their accounts of this story. There's a lot of debate about that name change, and people often had two names in those days, consider Simon and also Peter. And given the similarities in the synoptic gospels, it's hard to argue that they're two different people, that there was a Matthew disciple and that there was also a different disciple, both of them tax collectors, but this guy's Levi and that guy's Matthew. Luke tells us, as I just mentioned, that he is a tax collector and that he was in the middle of doing business when Jesus found him. Now back in mid-October, Jeremy Mefford mentioned the tax collectors in his exegesis of Luke 3. That was when they came before John the Baptist and asked for wisdom for what they should do, how they should go about their business now that they had gone through the baptism of repentance. Let me give just a brief refresher of some of the things that Jeremy said back then about the tax collectors. The system of tax collection in Rome was one of the most, if not the most complicated, disordered, and gameable systems of taxation in world history. That is until 1913 when the United States Congress said, hold my beer, and created the IRS. <laughs> Under the Roman Code, the rights to tax a territory were actually leased out to the highest bidder. They would be leased to an individual, or they could be leased out to a group of individuals, whoever was willing to pay the most for that leased business. That lease would have to have been paid in advance so only the well-funded or crooked got into this kind of business. So to recoup the costs of the license to do business, Rome gave near unrestricted power to these brokers so that they could add surcharges to the already heavy Roman tolls. Some entrepreneurial men would sub subcontract their tax harvesting to collections agents who would do all the dirty work for them. And the word that Luke uses of Levi in verse 27 tells us that he is the latter of those two. He's a subcontracted collections agent for a higher tax broker or tax officer. Later on when we get to Luke 19 in four or five years, we will read about Zacchaeus and he is actually the former of the two. He's a chief tax officer, most of your Bibles will say that, which is that uh, broker agent, he's controlling all of the region because of the license that he bought. Now on top of all of this, there were different classifications of taxes. There were sales taxes, property taxes, land taxes, pole taxes, fishing taxes, hunting taxes, on and on it went. And you guessed it, every tax agent, every tax harvester, every one of these Zacchaeuses and Levi's could add an individual surcharge to every single one of those taxes. The whole thing was a racket, a kind of banana republic. Nobody loved tax collectors. Lucian, a second century non-Christian writer, compared tax collectors to adulterers, pimps, yes-men, and informers. It goes without saying that Jewish men who engaged in tax collection in any way 
were considered traitors to the nation, the scum of the earth, and they were almost always excommunicated from the synagogue. They couldn't have any part in the religious life of their fellow Israelites. And Jesus singled this man out and said, I want you. Consider that for a minute. Notice Jesus didn't ask anybody else for their opinion on his choice of Levi. Have you ever thought about this? Hey, disciples, I'm going to be adding that guy right there who's robbed and stolen from you for years and years and years. Does anybody have any additional thoughts to my choice here? It's not what Jesus did. Remember, by the way, that one of his disciples, Simon, not Simon Peter, the other Simon, is called a zealot in the scriptures. A zealot is someone part of an opposition group whose primary goal was to ruin the Roman Empire and overthrow Rome's control of Jerusalem. And Jesus chose a tax collector employed by Rome whose job was to increase the revenue and the power of Rome to work alongside an insurrectionist of Rome. That's interesting. Jesus also chose, you remember just a few weeks ago, Peter, James, and John, fishermen off the Capernaum shoreline. And that's the same shoreline that Levi's tax booth was likely set up on. I wonder what kind of tax harvesting he was doing with a tax booth on the shoreline. Peter, James, and John had likely stood in line at that same station Surely, with all the tender love and concern for Levi in their heart, and they had to hand over part of their daily haul to this man, all their hard work, and they had to give a significant portion of it away. You can imagine the disciples, wait a sec, Jesus, hang on a sec, that guy, are you serious? Can we, can we talk about this for a minute, please? But Jesus was quite serious. He was as serious when he chose Levi as he is when he speaks to the heart of the pedophile in our day and says, follow me. Or the prostitute. Or the playboy. Or the baby murderer. Or the lifelong Democrat voter. <laughs> or the Russell Moore Twitter follower. He was as serious as he was when he chose that person who's a soft complementarian or the guy who was convinced that saying la 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 over and over again is biblical speaking in tongues or that pastor who made you look like a fool in front of your previous church. He didn't make a mistake when he called that man or that woman who like Levi has more than you will ever have. Who's in an insanely higher tax bracket than you are, who has more friends than you'll ever have, or a more successful business, or always smiling children. His call was not in vain to the father who, even today, still struggles to not shout at his children, or the mother who won't receive a rebuke from her husband, children, or church family, or the adult son or daughter who thinks that because you go to Christ the King, you belong to a patriarchy cult. Jesus 
chose misfits. He didn't stutter when he said to each one of us, follow me. He didn't have to think about it twice. He's on a mission. He knows exactly who he's calling because he genuinely loves each one of these people regardless of what we think of them. But he has asked us to love them the same. As I have loved you, the Lord said, as, as I have loved you in the same way, so love one another. Imagine Matthew or Levi getting that command about Peter, James, and John or Simon the Zealot, or them receiving that commandment about Levi. Does your disposition towards the church match your Savior's, beloved? Do you love the people that God chose? Or do you want to nitpick them to death? Bite and devour them? Do you just not feel like loving some of the misfits that Jesus chose? Are you waiting until you feel like it? until there's a good opportunity, until something happens. Oh, they did something nice. I'll love them now. I'll extend my gratitude towards them, or I'll be gracious to them. The Bible commands that we repent of this and that we get right to loving them. Through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in this, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware that you are not consumed by one another. That's a warning to the church. Eugene Peterson rightly asserted that it's a whole lot easier to act your way into a new kind of feeling than to feel your way into a new kind of acting. What can you do right now, church, to act in congruence with Jesus' gracious choice of followers? Number one, Start praying for that love towards specific people and also pray for opportunities that you'll get to practice it. I know that's a hard prayer. Because you know when you pray it, God's going to give you opportunities. And then number two, do something about it. Offer to buy lunch. Sit with them at a fellowship meal. Offer an encouraging word. Give a gift in secret. Send a limp-wristed pastor you know a Christmas card telling him you and your family love him and you'll be praying for him all next year. You'll never find the love for all of Christ's people by only hanging out with the sheep that you like and gossiping about the ones that you don't. Now notice this too. Christ's love, His choosing of people, produces exponential fruit for the kingdom. Consider Levi's initial response to Jesus' invitation. Verse 28, And he left everything behind and rose up and began to follow Him. Everything rose follow. It's very similar to the paralyzed man from the previous story. Rise, take up your bed, that old way of life, but you can walk home now. He walked away from his business and income and security because of what? Why did he do it? It was grace. It was fully leaded grace. Double shot espresso, hot gospel grace. I can hear Levi echoing the words of Paul. He has saved me and called me with a holy calling, not according to my works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was given to me in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been manifested by the appearing of my Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light to me through the gospel. 
For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. That's from 2 Timothy 1, verses 9 to 10 and 12. From the pen of Charles Wesley, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's light. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. Thine eye, he saw me, he noticed me. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That's Levi. That's his story. And that's our story too, beloved. What caused this? What's the means? How does this happen? It is grace. It is all grace. An image bearer marred by sin and through his own life choices shown the social boot to the fringes of society where only adulterers, pimps, yes-men, and informers would feel comfortable sitting down to dinner. And then Christ's atom bomb of grace hits and all things become new. And you can see that that fruit fallout of this grace-wrought faith keeps on coming. In verse 29, Levi gave a big reception. Other translations will say a great feast or banquet for Jesus in His house. There was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with them. What did He do? It was instant, joy-filled, and lavish praise to the kindness of Christ. After walking away from his business and his incredible income, Levi went and bought up all of Costco. He threw a huge feast to showcase the teacher who said to the outsider, you're mine. Additionally, he invites his tax collector buddies and other colorful people to sit back and see for themselves. What did he want them to see though? This very strange thing. This man's a teacher of righteousness, but he calls sinners to repentance. Think about that for a minute. The teacher of righteousness who calls to himself sinners. The old saying says that misery loves company. Well, so does joy. The joy produced by the Holy Spirit cannot reach its apogee, its pinnacle, until it's shared. Solomon said, Men prepare bread for laughter, and wine makes life glad, and money is the answer to everything. We might read that verse with a bit of suspicion, but put that in Levi's context. Bread for laughter, wine for gladness, and money to show how much I love this man. This is exactly his response. He is filled with joy and he shares his joy not only with Jesus but with everybody else. Jesus was welcomed with extravagance that if the Greek word here for reception in some translations, the great feast, be rightly understood, Levi's monetary gift was in excess of any that Jesus would receive in his entire lifetime. That's how much money he just spent on him. I had a conversation with a brother this week who said something encouraging to me. He said, being a member at Christ the King is like jet fuel for joy. 
Now that may sound strong to some of you, but he meant it with all of his heart. And I'll tell you why I think that's the case. This is a brother who does not wait around for people to come and serve him joy. To include him in a group, to make him feel like he belongs. In his regular pursuit of Jesus, he is reminded of where he had fallen to in sin. That Jesus chose him. He is filled with the joy of the Lord and then he goes and he shares it with others. If you've been chosen by the king to rise up and follow him, you who were a basket case of sin and worth nothing to nobody, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and a stranger to the covenants of promise, and you can sit in the pew today and you can emote in the pity pit with yourself because you aren't a part of the in crowd. That you don't get to play all the reindeer games with everybody else. Let me tell you two things. Number one, you have not begun to realize what a grace it is that Jesus chose you. The misfits that do find deep and enduring contentment in the Lord are the ones who have looked their sin square in the face and then remembered, but Jesus chose me. Second thing that I want to say to you, by staying bitter and contentious, you will never have joy that draws anybody in. On the contrary, your grumbling spirit will assure that your prophecy of no one wants to be around me is a self-fulfilling prophecy. Now that may seem heavy of you for those, for those of you who are already in a ditch. You already feel like you're on the outside. You're kind of speaking hard to me. I already feel bad about myself. I just want to let you know, joy's not going to wallow in the ditch with you. Joy will extend a hand to pull you out of the ditch, and it'll do it with a smile on its face, but it's not going to get down there with you. You've got to find contentment in Jesus and His choosing of you. Here's three things you can consider if you find yourself in that place. Number one, repent of playing the part of a victim. The only victim in all of human history was Jesus Christ, who died as a sinless substitute for your sins. And then he said to you, the perpetrator of his suffering, he said to you, follow me. I call you to be mine. The second thing, in your daily Bible reading, write down every instance you find of people being grumblers in response to the grace of God. As many as you can find. You might think, that's kind of strange advice. You say, I'm already at a low point. You want me to go lower by thinking about the grumbling of others? Thomas Watson rightly said, until sin be bitter to you, Christ will never be sweet. Lastly, New Year's resolution, get a copy of Jeremiah Burroughs, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. Read it this next year and keep rereading it until you find out the treasure that it contains. It's highly valuable work. I want to turn now to the disappointment of the Pharisees over Jesus' poor choice of associations. Verse 30. And the Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and the sinners? Now Luke doesn't explicitly say this, but there's been some time that's elapsed between the party that Levi 
through for Jesus and invited all of his tax collector buddies and this moment where the party poopers, the Pharisees, come on the scene. Some time has elapsed. If you think about it for a minute, the Pharisees wouldn't have attended Levi's gathering. The question that they asked the disciples here in this text makes that abundantly clear. And also, to my previous point about nasty attitudes, who invited them anyway? Sour-hearted Grinches. Nobody wants them at the party. Out of the overflow of their snow cone hearts, their mouths speak. The Bible says that they yugonguzoned at Jesus' followers. You can only imagine what that word means. It's almost like the Greek word makes sense without me telling you what it means. They muttered, they murmured, they discontentedly complained, they spoke against in a low tone. It's the same term used in the Septuagint to describe the attitude the Israelites had when they grumbled against the Lord in the wilderness. Same term. Luke uses this word many times, but only when people are complaining about Jesus' disposition towards the outsiders, towards women, Gentiles, sinners. Now to add just a little bit more cringe to this situation... The word also gives us a tone for their attitudes. The word means the cooing of doves. Try and picture them sticking their fingers under their noses, all snooty-like with pretentious egoism, saying, Why, oh why, do you drink and eat with tax collectors and sinners? It's obnoxious for me to even try to say it. The issue isn't that Jesus passed sinners in the street. You can't avoid that. Not even the Pharisees could. The issue is that he's sitting down to break bread with them. That he's drinking wine with them. No, don't jump to, well, was he having communion with them? That's not been instituted yet. What we do see here, though, in Jesus' table fellowship is a picture of a deeper level of association than saying howdy neighbor on the sidewalk. According to the teaching of the rabbis, salvation came through segregation. Sinners are sick with sin. And we don't want to catch any sin. Now do we? So you should mask up and keep six feet of social distance. Avoid gatherings of more than six people. Stay locked down. Keep away from anyone who might be contaminated. Well, that's not the righteousness of the Pharisees. That's 2020 America. But I repeat myself. Another sorry piece to this joy-swallowing bunch is the you in verse 30 is plural, referring to the disciples. Their issue is with Jesus. The text makes that clear the teacher of righteousness who sups with sinners, but notice how they passively, aggressively point their complaint towards those in his orbit. They're not only wrong, they're cowards about it. If you think about it, a man just passed from death to life as Jesus called him to follow. Today, December the 24th, 2023, Levi, the former tax collector, still lives. Because of Jesus. 
But this band of dead-hearted Henry Potters are scheming how to ruin the Savior's party. Remember, the feast was for Jesus, and Jesus was worthy. Now, I want to get to Jesus' response and the exact issue that the Pharisees were targeting in just a minute. But let me go back to what I said earlier about party poopers. Here we are on the cusp of some of the greatest Messiah-glorifying celebration of the year. Every Advent, the wet blanket bandits, a.k.a. the children of the Pharisees and their scribes, seem to come out of the woodworks and try to take glory away from Jesus in His celebrating church. The Grinch didn't steal Christmas. It's true. The atheists didn't do it either. Actually, conservative Christianity stole Christmas. The hope and cheer of all the years won't be given to Christ tonight because Christmas is a secular, pagan holiday. Let's vacuum up this mess into our fundamentalist purity spiral. <laughs> Scripture scrooges from Atlantic to Pacific. Their attitude is terrific. Jesus never told us to celebrate His birthday. We don't even know when it was anyway. By the way, I posted a video in Mattermost by Dr. James White, and he actually explains how you can know that Jesus' birthday was between December the 25th and January the 6th. It's great. You can go look it up. Lavish feasting is considered to be gluttonous and wasteful, and we can give all that money to the poor. Wine and strong drink leads to dissipation and the loss of self-control, virtues of Christianity. The hosting of great parties is self-centered and pompous, a show of pride. Watching holiday movies and reading holiday books dilutes the minds of our young ones who should be fasting and praying and memorizing Scripture and living radical lives for Jesus, selling all their possessions and giving them to Christian charities that spend just enough to keep impoverished people in poverty while making us feel really good about ourselves. Spending holidays with family singing, We Wish You a Merry Christmas is sub-gospel. Because real Christians would never sing a song without the name of Jesus in it, and truly righteous people wouldn't sing Christmas songs anyway. There's only one way to respond to this. Bah humbug. <laughs> now, be careful and hear exactly what I'm saying. It is possible to celebrate Jesus well without celebrating Christmas. But I want to tell you something. I don't know anyone who does. I don't know anyone who does and does it well. Maintaining joy and fellowship with others who put up trees and watch movies about Santa Claus or elves that put maple syrup on their spaghetti. I'm not speaking infallibly here. I'm just one guy. But the people that I've met who are anti-holidays seem to be trying to flex some moral superiority over those that do celebrate. You know what Jesus doesn't do here? He doesn't throw a penalty flag on Levi for excessive celebration. You know what Jesus doesn't do here? Starting a purity spiral, telling his host to get the rabble out of here. Salvation comes through segregation. Pass the wine to somebody else. Get it out of here. Get those high dollar cuts away to the poor. Let's fast and start a soup kitchen with all this extra stuff that we've got. 
But here's the reason. And this is what's so important for us to walk away with today. Jesus understands that lavish joy in response to his mercy is both righteous and inevitable. So there are people here today who are really bothered by the materialism around Christmas time. It sickens you during the Christmas season. Your kids, all they talk about is presents and candy and getting and getting and getting. You're the parent. Shepherd them through it. Find ways to change the focus from themselves to Christ or others. Take them shopping to buy their friends gifts. Instead, visit a hospital or fire station to share cookies. Songs, uh, sing songs. Give Christ's love to those who have it hard over the holidays. Create ornaments from Old Testament types and shadows of Christ to hang on your tree to remember Christ. If you take the season off from putting up a tree one year or giving gifts of certain sizes or proportions, fill the empty space with stories and outings and family games and meal prepping together to celebrate. And none of those opportunities dies after tomorrow. Christmas runs through Epiphany. That's the time when it's supposed that the wise men finally made it to Jesus, but that would be January the 6th, 25th of December, January the 6th, 12 days of Christmas. But please, beloved, kill the Pharisee Grinch in you. Kill it. Put it to death. The one who doesn't see why we should all have all this celebrating. Did Levi have a reason to celebrate? Absolutely he did. In fact, later in Luke, when we come to the prodigal son story, the older son, think Pharisees, throws a tantrum about the feasting and joy of his misfit brother, to which the father replies, we had to celebrate. We had to. It was fitting. It was needful. It was meat. It was necessary. Why? For this brother of yours was dead, and he's come alive again. He was lost, and now he's found. What did Jesus come into the world for, for that? Why do I want to celebrate? Because of that. Because Jesus, our Emmanuel, God with us, came into the world to save sinners. And now we come to our Lord's dispatching of the Pharisees' prejudice. Jesus, in verse 31, answered and said to them, it is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. Not those who are well, but the sick. This isn't a tacit approval of the Pharisees' current standing before God. The implication is much deeper than that. The son of man of Daniel 7, the new and better Adam, David's true son who will sit on the throne forever, is a king. And the hands of a king are the hands of a healer. And what good will that king, the great physician, do to a bunch of people who don't need, or more precisely, don't see the need for their healing? And his healing only works one way. It works through repentance. He says in verse 32, I have not come to call the righteous, but I have come to call sinners to repentance. Imagine you come across one of those people who sit on the side of the interstate looking destitute, holding out a sign that says something like, no home, no money, we'll take anything. 
And it always sounds good. Sounds like that person's aware of their need. Something in a Christian that wants to help them, wants to reach out, wants to meet the need. Imagine you roll down your window and you say to this individual, Sir, why don't you walk over to McDonald's across the street and I'll buy you whatever you want for dinner tonight. And the man responds, No thanks, man. I'm good. Everything a man needs to thrive can fit inside this grocery cart. I know that sounds a little far-fetched, but that's about where the Pharisees are at at this point. Jesus can see their need, but they can't. What does repentance look like? Jesus tells us in chapter 18 of Luke's Gospel, which, by the way, is another story between a Pharisee and a tax collector. He told this Pharisee to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying these things to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, pimps, yes men, prostitutes, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his chest saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, the tax collector went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. That's the reason that Jesus came. He came to find people who were low like that, the poor in spirit. Theirs will be the kingdom of heaven. Last week, I spoke of what I believe is a biblical, hope-filled expectation for the future. This world will be changed as we disciple the nations and establish God's Father rule over this whole earth. Righteous laws, faithful legislators, just business dealings, fair and holy punishment for wrongdoers, abortion mills shut down forever, schools educating children in the paideia nuthusia of the Lord. For some of you, that perspective may be new and it may be very exciting. We're going to win. In the end, we're going to win. But beloved, don't forget this. Don't forget how we win. Jesus said, I came to call sinners to repentance. In chapter 19 of Luke, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. In 1 Timothy 1.15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. In the creation of the world, man was the last thing that God created. But in his recreation of the world, Jesus begins by recreating new men. And those new men go into all the world and recreate more new men through the preaching of the gospel. Until the knowledge of the Lord covers the earth as the waters cover the seas. That's how God is doing it, how he's always done it. Don't forget it. As much activity as we do downtown, as much as we go before the legislators, as many laws as overturn abortion, all the things that we do to spread the workings of the gospel out our fingertips into every area of society, don't forget, Jesus Christ came to save sinners. Let me tell you one more thing about Rudolph. The puppets used in the 1964 film were given away to family and friends of those who produced 
the movie. Most children played with those toys over and over and over again, and so they went the way of all toys. The only known remaining original Rudolph and Santa set was brought on the Antiques Roadshow in 05. However, the pair only appraised for several thousand dollars. Not that anyone in here watches Antiques Roadshow, but if you do, several thousand dollars is not very much. But warm-hearted toy aficionado Kevin Chris heard about the dolls, purchased them at auction, had them professionally restored, and sold them to a collector for close to $400,000. A man with the right demeanor making old things new. This is a picture of the mission of Christ Church. He didn't come looking for those who were well put together. He didn't dine with those who had the best reputation and the nicest families. Christ came for misfits. He came to make them all new. Would you follow in his steps? Do you want to see Jesus' mission fulfilled? Do you want to increase your Christmas joy? Who's sick in soul in your life? Who needs Christ? Go tell them. Tell it on the mountain. You have got to be saved. Are you sick? Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. He is still saving sinners even today. Come and be saved. Let Him do a miracle in your misfit life just like He did in mine. And unto this Jesus be glory in the church throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Christmas joy that only comes through Jesus. But how Jesus has impacted the world to where the stories of Jesus are even hidden everywhere around us, even in Christmas movies that never mention His name. Oh Lord, let us find joy in Jesus in a myriad of different ways and celebrate Him this season and then invite those who are misfits, outcasts, sinners, perpetrators, and all sorts of rabble to come and dine with us, to see the glory of Jesus so that the wedding hall may be filled with guests on that day when he returns. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.